Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's stories for 48 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. I am choosing to exercise this privilege to communicate loudly and clearly that I am standing with my black brothers and sisters. The census killing of unarmed black people like George Floyd, Amon Arbery, Breonna Taylor, Trayvon Martin, Eric Garner, and unfortunately, many, many others must stop. Those are the words of Bill Lucky, William Lucky, the president of Lindsey Wilson College, and who's been the president uh, for Uh, Since 1998, uh, been at the college since 1983, uh, as we continue our series of conversations on social justice, policing, racism, and the important steps that must be taken to address past and present activities in this nation, we're going to ask uh, Dr. Lucky to offer his thoughts. As I said, Bill has been at uh, the college since uh, 1983. Uh, He grew up in Louisville in the uh, Portland neighborhood. He wrote, Our country, the United States of America, has a problem with racism, a problem that has been festering for over 400 years. Dr. Lucky, thank you very much for joining us on Think Humanities. And just let me ask you to share those thoughts and and some of your thoughts on this present moment. Thank you, Bill. I did grow up in Old Louisville uh, on Bank Street in the Portland area, and so that's certainly a part of me. I think I was there for maybe the first five years of my life, but my mother still lives in in the Louisville area, and certainly the Breonna Taylor killing has has had an impact on this area and and the country as well. But you know, I, I'm a I'm an old white man. I'm 60 years old. Certainly have been privileged. Was named president elect at age 36. I very much understand that I have lived a charmed life in many, many ways. And uh, there's a side of me that thinks, you know, I should just be quiet and listen to what others have to say about it. But I, I was drawn to Martin Luther King Jr. and what he said about the importance of the moderate white, you know, not sitting on the sideline. And so I felt like I needed to make a statement to say something about uh, the injustices that have been going on in this country. It's, it's not like me. I'm very much trying to be Switzerland. Uh, you know, I have Republican friends, Democratic friends. I don't try to show my hand in any way, shape or form, but I just thought I, the mission of this college called me to speak out and to say something. I have 224 black students on my campus and our mission. Part of our mission talks about active caring Christian concern where every student every day learns and grows and feels like a real human being. And I think there are times when black Americans don't feel like real human beings. They feel like they're treated less than. So I feel like it was important to speak up and to and to not remain neutral and not be Switzerland and to let people know clearly where I stood and that enough is enough. We cannot continue to kill unarmed black people. It just must stop. And that's why I took the time to hopefully write a thoughtful piece about um, what I was feeling and thinking. And I think it's hard to argue with with most of what's, you know, 
what I submitted for the for the public to see, and that we have had lost way too many people. And and the Martin Luther King talks about the cup of endurance, you know, boils over at some point. And I think that's where we're at right now in our country. Bill, how long have you been thinking about race? Is this one incident the one that has brought it all to uh, your attention in the way that you're writing it down? Or have there been other thoughts in the past that uh, that you wanted to write about but didn't or or did you that that were just not that maybe you didn't submit publicly I, I thought about race for a long long time I remember being a freshman in college and we took a course called cultures and traditions where I read Richard Wright's black boy the autobiography of Malcolm X you know letter from a Birmingham jail things like that that begin to take you out of your white bread world and to begin to think about things in a different way. And I've continued, I think, to stretch myself. You know, we went to see Slave Play on Broadway, which is a beautiful piece. I saw Raisin in the Sun with Denzel Washington. And honestly, Bill, you know, I think it's the humanities that force us to wrestle with the big issues of the day and to think about things more deeply. And if you just kind of remain in a shell of ignorance, you're not going to expand or grow. And, you know, I. I grew up, uh, like I said, in Louisville. Um, I did not live, I was not born with a silver spoon in my mouth. My mother retired as a housekeeper at Jewish hospital in Louisville. But I mean, I never had to worry about being pulled over by a police officer or what might happen to me as a result of that. Or I didn't worry about my daughters when they went out about what might happen. So I've thought about this for a long, long time. When I was at Wabash, our fraternity became the first fraternity at the college to actually accept a black person into the fraternity. You know, that had never happened at Wabash before, but sadly he was initially turned down because it only took one person to keep him out of our fraternity. And so we changed the bylaws so that it would, you know, you could uh, no longer have one person keep you from being accepted into the fraternity. So it is, you know, it's been something I've thought about a long time. Muhammad Ali was one of my heroes growing up. You know, a young man in Louisville and, and you know, seeing Cassius Clay go to Muhammad Ali and how he stood up for what he thought was right. That He was one of my idols. And so I've thought about race from that vantage point. And I've never taken the time to, to sit down and, and write about it, but I've thought about it an, an awful lot. And we've had great conversations around the dinner table with the girls growing up. So that's how, that's what I think. Well, there's a lot uh, that, that is being discussed today and there are a lot of opinions and a lot of thoughts uh, out there uh, among uh, many uh, black, white, um, uh, Asian, um, indigenous uh, peoples. It just seems like this is a moment uh, to address all of it. Two of the most popular books um, on race today um, are how to Be uh, an Anti-Racist by Ibram Kendi, and then the 2018 publication, White Fragility, Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism, and that's by a Washington uh, State University professor, uh, Robin D'Angelo. And D'Angelo uh, said in a recent interview, if you're a white person, and by the way, she is a white person, If you are a white person in America, you're a racist, pure and simple, and without a lifetime of conscious effort, you will always be a racist. Um, 
one of my favorite songs is is uh, one of my favorite productions is Avenue Q. And there's a song in Avenue Q that says everyone is a little bit racist and they go over the lyrics, talk about ways that we are racist. And so, you know, I, I think there's some truth in that, that we have to wrestle with that and bring that out about, you know, whatever preconceived ideas, you know, that we may have about an individual uh, based simply on the color of their skin. I mean, that is something that, that a lot of us do. And I've, I've, I've done that before. Absolutely have done that. I'm not going to deny that. But, you know, I do think that, that there's some truth in, in what's being said there. That statement, um, don't you think, is difficult for some white people to hear? Oh, it's hard for me to hear. It, I, it's got to be hard to hear. And and even the most uh, kind-hearted, you know, wonderful human being, you know, if they're honest with themselves, they're probably going to admit there have been, there has been an occasion or a time when maybe they crossed to the other side of the street because of who was, who was approaching him. There are things like that, that, that I'm sure, you know, all of us have done at some time or another, but, you know, we're not born racist. You know, I've I've got a two-year-old granddaughter and I've mentioned, uh, you know, we were at the Ronald McDonald house and she was in her princess dress and, there was a, a young black girl there and they were dancing with each other and she didn't know the color of her skin at all. Didn't recognize any difference, just saw a smiling face and a friend and went right to her. And, you know, they just embraced and had the best time. They're not, we're, we're taught to be racist. We're taught in many ways, I think, to be cautious or careful of, of other, something different than what we know or are brought up with. There was a television special on uh, earlier in the week uh, uh, titled Justice for All. How do we achieve justice for all? How do we take this moment and achieve justice for all? Don't you feel like something's different about this death than the others that have happened before? I feel like there is a movement. Uh, uh, George Floyd may become this generation's Rosa Parks. You know, I just feel like something is different about this. And it, and it comes from, you know, letting down our guard and feeling the need to speak out and just being more human and knowing that we're all brothers and sisters. We are all God's children, whatever the color of our skin. We are all God's children. And it's being able to un, to be empathetic. If we can put ourselves in someone else's shoes, and I think that's difficult for a lot of us, but to see George Floyd in broad daylight for eight minutes and 46 seconds, someone kneeling on the back of his neck, he's handcuffed, motionless, and never left. If you can't feel that pain, if you can't feel his daughter's pain, I felt it. I really felt it. And and I, I just think that we've all got to be able to put ourselves in that spot. And whether it's ourselves personally or our our loved ones, our wife, our parents, he was someone's son. He's someone's dad, right? He's another human being. And I think that's the key to, to turning this thing around is just being able to acknowledge he's, he's not an animal. 
He's a human being just like us, just like each of us. And I think that's the key to to reversing this thing and moving forward and, and making his death more meaningful moving forward. I really feel like it's the time has come. Something's, something's different about this one. Well, what are some of the um, key changes uh, that you think uh, all people, but particularly white people, uh, can begin to practice uh, to bring about a permanent change in the way we've this country has operated? Some say for 400 years, for a generation, for decades. What are some of those steps? I, I think what I keep seeing over and over are three things. The first thing is to listen. That instead of us having all of the answers and providing those answers, the first thing I hope to do is to spend more time listening. I have had you know several of our students, you know, white and black, who have reached out and are hungry for more conversations about what's happening in America right now. And so we intend to have those now, and we intend to have those when students get back in the fall. And so that's the first thing I want to do is to listen and so that I can better understand. So you have to listen, you have to learn. And, and, and part of learning is just taking that time to understand where they are coming from, to not assume you know what's right and to assume you have all the answers, but to listen, to learn, and then to act. And so that's what I plan to do at Lindsey Wilson College for our students is to, uh, most of all, I plan on being a student and to, to get better and to be more informed and to uh, be more empathetic and to feel their pain and to see what we can do differently and better as a college moving forward to make sure we're doing a better job of listening to our students and making sure that all of us are benefiting and learning from the experiences that they've endured. I want to return to uh, D'Angelo, the uh, the author, the professor at Washington State. And um, she, of course, uh, wrote this a couple of years ago, but it resonates uh, today. She's being interviewed, and this was from an interview that she did uh, uh, with CNN. I frankly don't know if it was on television. This is a, a, a printed copy of what she said. I, I really honestly think that maybe this was just from there on their website. But uh, the question was uh, from uh, the, uh, she made the statement uh, that so many white people are asking right now, what can I do? And so she, she lists five tasks and I'm not going to list all of them, but I want to uh, get your reaction to, to uh, some of them. Um, and the first one, she says, is to remove the claim from your vocabulary, I am not racist. If you were wondering why on earth I would ask you to remove that claim, then you have some education to do. What, what do you think she means by that? I think that um, you're not willing, if you're not willing to make yourself vulnerable, I think it's painful to admit that any of us, that Bill Lucky has any racist bone in his body. That is a painful admission. And so I think what, what the author is saying is that as long as you continue to have your walls up and aren't willing to acknowledge in any way, shape, or form that you have a defect in you, then you, we can't, I can't help you as long as you continue to stand there with your guard up. 
And so I think that I think that's what the author is suggesting. I think the author is just saying, let's just take that off the table. Let's just all admit, as in Avenue Q, everyone's a little bit racist. And that and that's a great starting point. If you can just come to that realization that in some way, let's make ourselves vulnerable and admit that. Just take that off the table. I think it's beautiful. The uh, second thing uh, she writes uh, and, and says in this interview is to work on answering this question. What does it mean to be white? Describe how your race shaped every aspect of your life from the moment that you took your first breath. Ask yourself how being white shaped how you see yourself as unique or special or different. Uh, that's a great question. Well, I'm thinking that when I was growing up on Bank Street, you know, my parents could take me to Fountain Ferry Park. You know, I'm not sure our black brothers and sisters had that same ability to go to Fountain Ferry Park. I was born in 1960. And so uh, there are things like that uh, that happen. Uh, there was the Pew Foundation just released a report, you know, talking about whether, you know, would you rather be I don't know the exact details of it, but essentially, overwhelmingly, people saw advantage to being white as opposed to being any other color. And so I have benefited clearly. It has shaped my life for sure to to uh, be able to be a person of privilege, a white male, not just white, but a white male. I mean, we've got, you know, sexism can be a whole nother topic. I mean, women didn't even get the right to vote until 1920. And that was a hundred years ago that we're talking about. So, you know, it's it's double privilege to be white and male uh, is uh, is a significant advantage over the rest of the world for sure. Well, there's a a number of other uh, questions that she asked. Uh, I've also learned in a very short period of time um, that it's. Certainly, you labeled uh, George Floyd the possible Rosa Parks of of today, but there are so many other disparities uh, that have come to the surface that we've talked around the edges, that we've whispered about, but we haven't really directly connected uh, all of them together. For example, or at least white people haven't, or at least I haven't, uh, health disparity. Uh, we've heard, and it has been discussed, the overwhelming uh, numbers uh, of COVID-19 coronavirus uh, that have affected uh, African-Americans over white people. Um, Education, which you certainly know uh, something about. Uh, Housing, uh, economic uh, uh, levels uh, in this country. Uh, the ability to get ahead or to stay behind um, uh, your your white brother or sister. So there's a lot of this that that's that's coming to a head at uh, at one time. And I've heard uh, black leaders say we just can't address policing. We just can't talk about defunding. It's all of those things. Without question. I mean, without question. Are we okay that uh, infant mortality rates for black people are two and a half times more than the infant mortality rate for white babies? Are we okay that the life expectancy for a black person is is four years shorter than the life expectancy for a white person? Are we okay that the black population is is 30, 13% of the population, but 
of the COVID-19 deaths. Are we okay that the poverty rate for white non-Hispanics is two and a half times less than the poverty rate for a black person? I mean, I could go on and on. The median household income, 71,000 for a non-Hispanic white person versus 41,000 for a black person. That is, that's not just coincidence. I mean, we must agree that that is not something that can, can, can continue in this country. And, and that's one of the things where I've talked about the, the, uh, the systemic racism that has existed in this country that has helped create many of the statistics that we're looking at today. Even when you see people of similar educational background, both having high school diplomas, when we even see, you know, their level of college math or high school math that they've achieved, you don't see um, black students going to the four-year college as frequently as you see a white student. Oh, there's so many things that get in the way of us being a better country and a better nation. And we can only get better if we're trying to take care of each and every one of us uh, a rising tide lifts all boats. And that's what we've got to do is find out a way for each of us to have a better life. But certainly our black brothers and sisters, it's long overdue. It's their turn to uh, to be helped and taken care of and, and to have these problems addressed in a way that I think this country has ignored for many, many years. These uh, questions uh, don't have easy answers. No, uh, this is uh, this is tough work, and and maybe it should be tough work. Uh, there are uh, statements made, um, uh, pieces written that really challenge the system. No question. That's that systemic. Uh, it challenges the system. I don't know if you know of uh, Ricky Jones, who is a University of Louisville professor, political philosopher. He writes a column for the the Louisville Courier Journal, and. He wrote this week, um, has his own ideas about uh, how we can improve. And, and uh, I, again, there are, this is complicated. Uh, this, is, this tests all of us to really uh, drill down and, and, and learn more and listen more. Um, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna, uh, you would not think that somebody would disagree with uh, the popular term that we've talked about, uh, frankly, at uh, – at Humanities Conference, uh, DEI, Diversity, uh, Inclusion, uh, Equity, and Inclusion, DEI. Uh, that's a common phrase now. But Ricky Jones says, one of our key mistakes of late has been weaponizing the new faddish diversity, inclusion, and equity movement and rhetoric to conveniently, conveniently and lazily lump black people in with endless other groups. We must stop that. If we're asking about black people, black struggle, uh, black suffering or black death, we need to stop saying people of color, minorities, marginalized groups. We need to say black people or African-Americans. In doing so, we finally respect the fact that black Americans have a uniquely oppressive historical and contemporary relationship with this country stretching back to 1619. Wow. I have... uh... I have used the phrase people of color many times, and I have three uh, daughters, adult daughters, who have said, Dad, you should not be saying 
people of color. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, well, that's for very much the same reason. They were, they were saying, you know, that's not, I don't think that's appropriate, Dad. You need to say black people, black Americans, not people of color. And so I've tried to listen to our my enlightened daughters, and I've tried to become better from uh, counsel that they provided me. And so I can, I can understand, you know, what Ricky Jones, why Ricky is making that statement. And that certainly uh, we have other friends that, that need help and who are also uh, not in the best of circumstances, whether it's the LGBTQ people or our Hispanic brothers and sisters, we could go on and on with people that aren't quite in, that don't have the privileges that uh, the white Americans do. But I, I can understand why Ricky would make that statement. Uh, Professor Jones also um, takes on uh, colleges and universities, something that you know a little bit about. Um, he says, I say to my uh, fellow uh, presidents of universities around the, the country, we cannot claim to be serious universities at this time without having strong black studies on our campuses. If we don't have black studies programs, create one. If you have a program, turn it into a department. If you have them, don't follow the path of so many schools and kill black studies through open hostility or benign neglect. Uh, I, I think he makes a very good point, and I think that's something that we will do differently and better moving forward. We have women's studies programs on our campus, and it has made a tremendous difference. And I could very much see us moving forward into a black studies initiative as well and develop it into a program. In fact, I hope that's something that will evolve as we get back to campus and talk about things we can do differently and better moving forward. So I, I think that's a very good suggestion that he's made. He also says uh, the empty excuses that great black faculty cannot be found or afforded must be abandoned. Uh, I understand that challenge. Uh, we live in an a economically distressed Appalachian County where 97% of the people in Adair County are white. Uh, we do have uh, black faculty members, not as many as we would like to have. And so I don't want to use that as an excuse in any way, shape, or form to try to get better moving forward. So I, I, I agree with what he's saying. And he says, uh, too, recruit more black students. We, uh, I think we do a great job in that area. Uh, I certainly think that, you know, not all colleges and universities do, but, um, you know, we're somewhere around 14% of our residential students are uh, black Americans. We have about another uh, 10% of our students are international students. So almost a quarter of our students are either black Americans or students from other countries. It is a, uh, a very diverse boiling pot of, uh, of different cultures on our campus. It is one of, I think, Lindsay Wilson's greatest strengths that we you know, live in this uh, all-white community, nearly all-white community, but we are certainly a diverse uh, uh, conglomeration of cultures on our campus. I've seen, I've been to weddings with um, people from all over the world and people's weddings, people of different colors in people's weddings, and it is, it's one of our strengths. I really love how we come together as a family at this college. Bill, do you think, as we've noted, this is a uh, a time when a lot of these things are not only boiling up to the surface and and 
creating all of this conversation and all of these articles. And I'm sure there'll be a, a number of new publications that will be coming out uh, soon. What is going to separate or make this point, this George Floyd moment different from Eric Garner or some of those in the past um, that, that have not been forgotten. None of them have been forgotten. Sure. Their families certainly and their communities have not forgotten them, but the rest of the uh, America has, maybe the world has to a degree. What's going to make this one different? How, how can we all contribute to a, a, a better America for, for the next generation? I think that, um, I, I think this one is different. And I think what we can do, I know that Martin Luther King talks about the white moderate not sitting on the sideline. And the beautiful thing about these protests that I just love is that you are seeing as many white people out protesting as you're seeing black people, you're seeing young and old. We even had a protest here in Adair County. I never would have thought we would have had a protest here in Adair County. I actually participated in the protest and went there with my wife and my oldest daughter. We were there supporting our black brothers and sisters. And I think that's what's going to make the difference is it's just not uh, our black brothers and sisters out there, but they are hand in hand and arm in arm with our white brothers and sisters as well out there trying to make a difference in this world. It's the time has come. We cannot have unarmed black men continue to be killed. And it's not just police brutality. It is other things that are, it's the systemic things we talked about that uh, the infant mortality rates, things like that, that also need to happen. Martin Luther King talked about, referred to, he was talking about social injustice as a boil. You use the terminology boil, but he was saying just like for a boil to heal, you have to cut it open, you have to air it out. It has to be exposed to the light of day. And, uh, and, and I think that's what we've done in this particular case. So I really feel like we're moving in the right direction as a country. Even NASCAR said we're going to ban the Confederate flag at events moving forward. Who would have ever thought that NASCAR would step up and do something like that? Well, who would have ever thought that somebody would have questioned whether or not, uh, or that we even have the Confederate flag still flying today, but that's a, that's a different, uh, different conversation. Bill, finally, uh, just wrapping up, is there one final uh, thought that you could leave with us about uh, the steps that need to be taken, the solutions that we need to uh, enrich the uh, conversations that need to be uh, held uh, going forward? I think, once again, I think it's to listen, to learn, and to act. Those are the key ingredients, I think, for us moving forward. We don't have all the answers. Don't let us try to project and be the solution. We need to listen to our black brothers and sisters and learn and and then act once we have a little bit of knowledge. So that's what I would recommend. Dr. William Lucky is the uh, president of Lindsey Wilson College in uh, Columbia, Kentucky. Uh, We appreciate uh, his uh, thoughts on paper and then sharing those with us on our Think Humanities podcast. Uh, Bill, good luck. And let's make... uh, Let's make this a reality that change will happen. Absolutely, my friend. Good to talk to you always. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's stories for 48 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. 
Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.